Hey, good morning, and thank you for joining us at First Christian Church. My name is Daniel, and I'm our group's pastor here at the church. And we're thankful that you're here with us. Like Jeff said, like kind of on a gloomy day, I woke up today, and I thought it was still nighttime. So it is really great to see you all, and we love the energy this morning. But we are in the second week of this Breakfast Club series. We've been really talking about this idea that a lot of us, we're really bizarre when it comes down to it, but really some of us are just better at hiding it than other people. And there's this guy we kind of wanted to tell you about, and he goes kind of by the nickname of Easy Eddie. And maybe that means nothing to you whatsoever, but when it comes to Easy Eddie, I bet you know his boss a little bit better. He's a guy by the name of Alfonso Capone. Al Capone, you know who I'm talking about now? And so Al, if you know anything about him, he was the most notorious, perhaps, crime boss in the history of America. He was so powerful at one point that in the city of Chicago, he could take entire city blocks and kind of just give it as a gift or a gesture to some of his closest confidants, like a guy like Easy Eddie. And Eddie, the special role that he carried in Al's life was he was his lawyer and his bookkeeper. And so he was responsible for cooking the books so that he could put the money in a place where it seemed legitimate and they could continue to operate their business. And as you're hearing us talk about Easy Eddie, maybe you're thinking he's kind of a scumbag or something like that. And yeah, those are sort of stereotypes that we put on to people from time to time. But despite his chosen path in life, Eddie still had this family and he had a son that he wanted to pass a legacy down to. Now we're going to touch more on that later, but like I said, we're in the middle of this Breakfast Club series. And the heart behind this series, and you're probably like, what in the world are we doing talking about the Breakfast Club in church, is that there are these characters that exist in the Breakfast Club that are loosely similar to some of these characters that we're looking at in the Bible. So the 1980s classic and some of these stories from Scripture, we actually thought they could kind of go together and give us some memories there. But in the Breakfast Club, just like in the Bible, just like in our own lives today, again, we're really holding on to this idea that We're all pretty bizarre, but some of us are just better at concealing it than other people. In The Breakfast Club, just like in life, we've got these stereotypes that people paste onto us and that we become known by, whether it's the brain, the athlete, a basket case, a princess, or a criminal. And really, just like those kids in the movie, it's up to us whether or not we're going to let the stereotypes that people push at us in life be the things by which we define our own selves and be the things by which we leave a legacy. And this is the good news as we dive in today. The good news is this. If you recognize that you're bizarre, God is in the perfect place to use you because you're being honest with yourself. Because when you open up God's word, we think the Bible is pretty open about the fact that God uses bizarre people and bizarre circumstances for his glory. And so if you're open to God using you regardless of what your life is like, you're in a good place moving forward today. But today, we get the benefit of talking about the athlete in the Breakfast Club, or Andrew Clark, you know, Emilio Estevez. You should have heard Eric Friedman screaming Emilio in the hallways the last couple of weeks. It's been a very interesting couple of weeks at the office. And really, honestly, I got to say this, I don't know Emilio Estevez from the Breakfast Club because I wasn't even alive when the Breakfast Club came out. I know him from the Mighty Ducks, am I right? Come on now, let's go. This is obviously who he's a part of. But in the movie, this guy, Andrew Clark, played by Emilio, he's this wrestler cool guy jock who kind of is the man of the town. And he's got this dad that he really looks up to, but he could never quite live up 
to his dad's reputation. Andrew, he's really the guy that no one stands up to in life because he's the man. He's the one who cuts up in class. He's always pulling all the pranks. He's kind of playing into the jock stereotype every step of his life. Or at least that's what we think from the outside looking in. Because there's this pivotal movement in the movie where Andrew, he kind of peels back a layer and reveals his true self to his other classmates in detention. Because the reason why he ended up in detention is because he was bullying another kid. And the honest truth was he was doing it to impress his dad. Because his dad was the big man on campus growing up too. But see, Andrew, he's not really proud of his actions. And so he kind of shares his true heart. He says this, I tortured that poor kid because I wanted my dad to think I was cool. He was always going off about who he was in high school and all the wild things he used to do. And I just got the feeling that I never cut loose on anyone, right? Now, maybe it doesn't take the form of bullying someone to look like you're cool, but have you ever been there? The family pressure? Maybe it's to go into the family business. Maybe it's to be married and have a certain number of kids by a certain age. Maybe the pressure is to have as good of a car as your mom or your dad, or to like the specific hobby that's gotten handed down from generation to generation. So apparently you're supposed to love hunting or playing basketball or like being girly or something like that. See, sometimes though the pressures, they aren't hobbies or things like that, or accomplishments even. Sometimes it's just maintaining the status quo, this idea that you're just a chip off the old block. And so people associate you naturally with who your parents are, whether they're good things or bad things. Oh, well, your parents are religious? Why aren't you religious? Oh, your dad's a doctor? Well, why aren't you as smart and successful as him? Or have you heard someone say something this cruel? Because you do hear these things from time to time. Oh, you'll end up just like your mom or dad. Or maybe from time to time, it's like, oh, you really think your marriage is going to be any less of a train wreck than your parents? What gives you that confidence? And on and on it goes, the pressure that mounts for us to be something that maybe we don't even want to live up to. And so really, this is the big tension for us today. This is what we're going to wrestle through together. What do we do with family pressures and examples in life? What do we do with the example and the pressure that comes from our family, especially when those examples might not be that great? And today, what we're really going to do is we're going to look at this obscure guy from the Old Testament from the book of 1 Kings named King Asa. So if you would, would you turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 15? We're going to have this on the screen as well, so don't worry about that if you don't got a Bible with you today. But really, Asa, he's not exactly the most famous character in the Bible. A lot of us have been going to church for a long time, and maybe we've never even heard of this dude before. So before we get to King Asa, what we're going to do is we're going to look at his family tree to give you a picture of what his life was like before he reigned as king. And to start, we've got to look at his dad, a guy named Abijah. And we're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 15. This is what it says. It says, In the 18th year... Of the reign of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijah became king of Judah, and he reigned in Jerusalem three years. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. 
He committed all the sins his father had done before him. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God, as the heart of David, his forefather, had been. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord gave him a lamp in Jerusalem by raising up a son to secede him and by making Jerusalem strong. For David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite, which we're going to hit on that more in a little bit. And there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam throughout Abijah's lifetime. As for the other events of Abijah's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? There was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. And Abijah rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David. And Asa, his son, succeeded him as king. You're welcome, by the way, for the Jeffrey trivity, like trivia down the line, right? Just so you have that obscure ancient Israelite king knowledge. But quick note, this is actually really important for your sake for today. At this point, Israel has actually been split into two separate kingdoms. The northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. Israel was supposed to have a special relationship with God, but because of their disobedience, because of the way that they behaved, part of their sin resulted in their family, in their nation, literally being split in two. When you think about Israel, you usually think about one political geographical unit. It had been split in two at this point. Abijah was the king of the southern kingdom, Judah, and Jeroboam was the king of the north. But here's the issue. Abijah is a really bad dude. And I don't mean like he was cool, like the way we say bad from time to time. He was legitimately a terrible guy. So really, what did Abijah do? What made him such a bad king? Well, what we find out is that from the beginning, Abijah follows in the footsteps of his dad, who wasn't the best example. Isn't it interesting how we can figure that out in just a couple of lines? And the phrase that we see most prominently is that Abijah was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, which is honestly putting it really, really mildly. Because Abijah, he was a guy who instituted cult prostitution in the temple. Kind of a big deal. But maybe you're sitting here thinking, well, you know, there are a lot of political leaders who aren't the best people in the world, right? I mean, we're constantly having political leaders who are not of the greatest character, but the people are still cool, right? Well, the issue is this. In Israel, the king isn't just a political leader. He's a spiritual leader as well. And yeah, political leaders, they lead people astray. That's the honest truth. But what happens to all the people when a spiritual leader is rotten too? You'd like to think that the people would go on trusting and honoring God, but that's not it. Historically, that rarely happens. The big issue becomes when the leader is rotten and promotes evil, the people follow. And we see that time and time again. So really, this is something we need to take home if we're in positions of authority and influence. If we claim we're followers of Jesus, being devoted to God and his word must be the chief voice in our life, not just one of many voices. I'll say it like this. God doesn't work well as a consultant. He doesn't work well as one of many voices at the dinner table. He works well as someone we perfectly trust and perfectly obey as a Lord and as a king. See, Abijah, he had the ability to seek God, to know God, to trust him. But he also had the voice of his dad, Jeroboam. And like a lot of us, he decided it was easier, better, maybe more appealing 
to go on with the voice of his dad, even though his dad had set up a reign of evil. And so really, what this should shout to us more than anything else is that for you and me, we have a monumental responsibility to the next generation that comes after us. And this is for all of us. This isn't just you if you're a parent. Whether you're a friend, a leader, an acquaintance, whoever you think you are, there are people in your life that are taking their cues from you. And I don't think this is just some stale bible truth. Really, this is something that matters and that I've lived on an individual level. Really, if it weren't for the godly people in my life and in my church, I would not be here today. You know, I grew up in a single-parent home. My mother fought and struggled to be the supporter of our family and the spiritual leader of our home. And like many of you know firsthand, that's not easy. But the people at my church, they didn't look at me and see some misbehaved middle school child. What they saw was the potential to leave a lasting impact. And through the presence of people in that church, regular folks like you and I and friends, I am who I am today. But I wonder if you ever think about this. Do you recognize that every single week, there are roughly 400 children and students that walk in and out of the doors of this church while we're worshiping on a regular basis? And not all of them come from perfect circumstances. At least half of them are probably coming from broken families. What we recognize is that the eternity and potential impact of these children in the kingdom of God that's hanging in the balance. And God says, We've, I've entrusted these children to your care. That's 400 spiritual heritages to guide and direct. And this is the thing that we recognize. We all have the potential to leave a lasting impact. But it doesn't start with anyone else. It doesn't start with some childcare worker who's back in the nursery right now. It doesn't start with someone who was helping in the Oasis with junior high students earlier today. Really, it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with us. For some of us, that means it starts in our own household because some of these kiddos who are coming in and out of our church doors, they exist under our roofs. For some of us, it means passing on a faith legacy that was excellent. You had a great family. They taught you to love Jesus. There was unconditional love, and that's your responsibility to pass on. For some of us, it means sharing our less than ideal circumstances and wisdom from those circumstances with people and passing it on because God has brought us from a place of brokenness to healing. But for each and every one of us, we have something to offer. Now, when you bring all of that together, each of us contributing our own part, all together, we, the church, have a responsibility collectively for those who come after us. But you know what I hear a lot of the time? I hear a lot of pessimism about young people. Because I hear a lot of the time people just saying, well, if the world's going to hell in a handbasket anyway, what bother should I have in helping this next generation? Isn't it cre crazy easy for that attitude to just creep in to our thought process? I mean, just think about Abijah and Asa. They were literally in the middle of a civil war in what was supposed to be God's mode of blessing to the entire world. And even in the midst of turmoil and hopelessness and terrible leadership, God remains true to Abijah and Asa. 
Even as Abijah and Jeroboam are duking it out, trying to fight to earn back in their own eyes the kingdom, God is still waiting to bless faithful obedience. And he's even there when Abijah does terrible, terrible, terrible stuff. So God, he's got this special presence in relationship with Israel, so he's going to stick with Abijah. And you even hear this phrase, so that David may have a lamp. I think we all know a lot about David. He was the ideal Israelite king who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But even though that was him, he wasn't perfect. But God blesses David's obedience, even in the midst of some terrible stuff David does. And it was David's righteousness years and years later that God remembers when it comes to being faithful to Abijah and his family. Now, here's the most sobering reality, though, about this story. For Abijah and for us, two simple words. He dies. His story ends. And his son Asa succeeds him as king. Now, Abijah has to stand face-to-face with God with the legacy that he's handed on. But what about Asa? Because I think you and I, we identify the most with Asa, don't we? If you're in his shoes, what do you do? Do you remain controlled by your past and make excuses? Do you want it all to change, or do you want it all to continue with you? So really, for all of us, the question is, do we live perpetually with a case of the if-onlys, Or do we choose to say once and for all, not on my watch? Not on my watch. And here's what we're about to learn about Asa. This is what we hear in verse 9. It says, in the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king of Judah. And he reigned in Jerusalem 41 years. Quite a longer lasting legacy than his terrible dad. His grandmother's name was Makah, daughter of Abishalom. And this is kind of the funny thing of this. You know, with Abijah, he wasn't the only rotten example in Asa's life. Because we've got Grandma Makah, too, which kind of sounds like a crow saying something ugly, doesn't it? Right? She was a real doozy. She kind of took up the family tradition of godlessness. She's mentioned twice in the story because she's probably the granddaughter of David's son, Absalom. And really, if you know anything about Absalom, he literally tried to kill his dad and take over the entire kingdom. So he's kind of got a rough rap sheet, right? And so the apple doesn't really fall far from the tree with old Macaw. So what she does is she does this terrible thing, and she builds what's called an Asherah pole, which is another symbol of cultic prostitution. But here's what we find with Asa. He doesn't stand and look at the terrible examples of his family and get intimidated. Instead, he's a man on a mission, and he's got a message for Grandma Macaw. These evil practices, they don't fly anymore because I'm king now. And really, this is the amazing thing we learn about Asa, and we learn about us. Just one person can change a spiritual legacy. You know, you may be sitting here thinking today, I blew it. I've messed up too big for God to use me. Or maybe even better yet, you're sitting here thinking, well, my family blew it for me, so I don't even have a chance for God to use me in the first place. God doesn't use my family. God doesn't use people like us. What's the use in trying? And you know what? Part of that is fair. But let me be clear. We don't all start on level ground 
But from today moving forward, we all get to choose the legacy that we are going to leave with our lives. And the good news is this. God is in the business of redeeming absolutely everything and using all things for his glory. Just check how Asa's life turned out. This is verse 11. It says, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. He expelled the male shrine prostitutes from the land and got rid of all the idols of his ancestors had made. He even deposed his grandmother, Makah, from her position as queen mother because she had made a repulsive image for the worship of Asherah. Asa cut it down and burned it in the Kidron Valley. And although he did not remove the high places, Asa's heart was fully committed to the Lord all the days of his life. He brought into the temple of the Lord the silver and the gold and the articles that he and his father had dedicated. I think a lot of the times we have a hard time really coming to terms with this, but really what people remember about us can be summarized almost into one sentence a lot of the time. And so when it comes to the ancient Israelite kings, what we hear a lot of the time is one of two phrases. Either they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, or like we hear about Asa, he did what was right. He eliminates the gross cultic prostitution that his dad and his granddad had promoted and his grandma had promoted. He kicked his own grandma out of the royal queen role because she created and worshipped an Asherah pole of cultic prostitution. He literally burned it because people followed the example of strong leadership. And he reestablishes faithful worship in the house of God that his own family had defiled. His dad Abijah, he would take the plunder of war and he would keep it for himself. But Asa took everything that he earned and he dedicated it back to the temple. When you put it all together, Asa removes every possible thing that he can in order to set things right. He did what was right, meaning he kept personally close to God. His heart was fully committed to the Lord all the days of his life. He wasn't perfect, we hear that. He didn't fix every single wrong, but he did everything within his control and followed God all the days of his life. You know what's interesting though? When you look at Asa's story, Instead of listing his father as Abijah, it lists his father as David, who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Maybe you're sitting here thinking today, I don't have a lot of great examples to look up to. I don't have a great family tree. Some of us have to look way, way back for a great example. Some of us, quite frankly, we need to look at a different family tree. But we don't have to look at our parents and throw our hands in the air and sigh and just claim, well, this is who I have to be. It's true, you can't choose your family, but you can choose who you will imitate. You see, one day, Easy Eddie came to and he realized he didn't want to pass on a mob employee legacy to his son, even though there was a ton of riches and luxuries that came with it. And we don't know exactly what led him to this point, but we find out that Easy Eddie, what he wanted to pass on more than anything else was a name of integrity. And so Easy Eddie works up the gall to compile all the evidence against his own boss, Al Capone, and he turns him in. Turns in his own boss. Later on, Eddie's son Butch decided that 
serving his country was a priority, and he became a famous fighter pilot in World War II. During the war, with minimal fuel remaining, Butch goes out and he takes on a whole fleet of enemy planes, taking a number of them down, coming back with bullets in his own body and in his plane. A war hero, a legacy left to the choice of a man like Eddie. But did you know what Eddie and Butch's last name is? O'Hare. Like O'Hare International Airport. Left a little bit of a legacy there, didn't he? You know, whether it's Easy Eddie, whether it's King Asa, whether it's you, whether it's me, in our lives, the thing that we learn is there must be removal to make room for change. We've got to get rid of some stuff if we want the good things to come flowing into our lives. And so really, this is the hard part of the day. Today, there is someone in this room who really needs to step beyond substance abuse and trust the fact that the grace of Jesus is sufficient for you. That he can lead you beyond even sobriety to peace and joy and meaning in life. Today, there are a number of people likely in this room right now who need to remove the temptation that's existing in their lives right now and emotionally reinvest in their marriage. Because right now, in your life, the temptation that is before your eyes is far less lasting and will leave far worse of a legacy than a legacy of faith and commitment to your spouse. If you would just lean in one more time, you could impact generations. Today, some of us need to recognize that there isn't a standard or a stereotype for us to live up to anymore. But in Jesus, we are chosen, accepted, and loved, and called children of God. When we remove these things from our life, when we let go of the sin that so easily entangles us, this much we know is true. At our best, the church doesn't just exist to list off bad things and call people out for them. The church really exists to rally around people who are willing to say with boldness, not on my watch anymore. I'm not going to live the generational sin. I'm not going to accept this pattern. I'm not going to hold on to this vice. I'm letting go, not on my watch. Because this is a place where we can recognize true freedom from the stereotypes and pressures that our families and sometimes the world places on us as well. The church is a place for grace, for encouragement, and for accountability. The church is a place for you who are fatherless to find father figures. For those of you who are motherless to find mother figures. The church is a place for those who come from the bondage of sin and temptation to find freedom from sin but also guidance and respect and love. The church is a place for those of us who were never given a positive example of what it looked like to trust Jesus in our life to inherit a family that is far bigger and far deeper than our blood family, something that God has given to us through our faith in Jesus. This is who we are at our best. So let's move to our time of response today. I really want to keep this short and sweet today because I think there are just a few things that we need to keep in mind as it relates to leaving a legacy that lasts. I think a lot of you today are sitting here thinking, like, this is kind of dramatic. I don't have any abijas or macaws in my family. Look, like, everyone was great. They loved me, all right? Uh, I had a great example of what it looked like to follow Jesus. Here's my word for you, if that is you. 
man, if you feel like God has filled you up with those kind of blessings, would you pay it forward to someone else? To a kid like me, maybe, who didn't grow up in perfect circumstances but needed people to surround him in order to see me through a number of difficult things in life? If God has filled you up and has blessed you with a heritage of faith, what are you doing hanging on to that just for yourself? There are people who God wants around your dinner table on a regular basis. There are people in your life who God wants you at all those baseball games. Would you give of the fullness that you have and pay it forward to some kid who really just needs someone to walk alongside them and prove that Jesus isn't just on the pages of a book, but that he actually lives and breathes and moves in the presence of people in his church. Now, there's another set of us today where I think you're thinking about all this baggage of your family. And more than anything else today, you're not feeling resolution. You're just feeling hurt. You feel like you've been given an unfair hand in life. Today really is the opportunity for you to recognize that maybe, just maybe, if I offer up this pain and hurt to Jesus, he would release me from it and he would give me peace and joy in life. Some of us need to drop the family patterns that have so entangled us for generations and say, God, I can't do this on my own, but I'm giving this to you. Would you give me life? Today, if that's you, I want to encourage you. Take a moment. Come up to one of these prayer benches at the front of the stage and just ask God to take the patterns from you that have kept you and your family in bondage and commit to stepping forward in the freedom of life with Christ. And finally, Kind of like the last thing we just said, there are a number of us who we really need to remove some stuff in order to step forward into being the people that God has created us to be. And so today, there's something that you're feeling super convicted about. You're recognizing in the forefront of your brain that what you're doing, the pattern or the attitude that you're holding on to, it's really hindering you from leaving a legacy. And you don't want the line at the end of your life to be a byword. You want it to be I did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Today, if that's you, if you need to let go of something, maybe what you need to do is come to these prayer benches as well and just let that go. But don't just give it to God. Give it to someone you can trust as well and say, hey, I need your help walking through this so I can be the person who God has created me to be. So today and every week, there are opportunities to respond. And the first thing we always do is we celebrate Jesus through communion. Through the little cracker and through the little cup of juice, we represent this idea that in Jesus' body and blood, we have been made right with God. But not just made right with God, made right with one another, made right with the world. God is redeeming everything in and through Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I just pray that you would take this time to celebrate him and remember him as you go to one of the six communion stations around the room. But the last way we respond is by giving of ourselves. And so today, there are a couple of things you can do. Whether or not that just means taking out your connection card and writing down a prayer request and inviting someone into that need in your life right now. We would love to pray for you as a church. Or maybe it's making a decision. You need to mark a little bubble to take a next step or to make a decision of faith. If you fill out your information and put that little connection card in the give and respond boxes at the back or the front of the room, we would love to walk alongside you. But a number of us today even have come prepared to give generously. 
And the reason why we do this is we recognize in a room like this that fills up twice on a Sunday morning and in an auditorium that fills up twice on a Sunday morning in Urbana, there is a collective influence for us to do far more than we could ever think of or imagine together through God's presence than we could do apart. So we give generously to the mission of First Christian Church because we're trying to leave a legacy of faith. We recognize that in the middle of the Midwest, we live in a county where four out of five people do not have any kind of connection to a local church. Most of those not having a relationship with Jesus. And we're saying not on our watch. We want to do something about that. And so if you've come prepared to give generously in that way, you can do that by going to the give and respond boxes, or you can download that give app that we've been talking about and give in a number of ways there as well. So as we respond today, I want to invite you to do something simple with me today because we really want this to land home. If you're able, would you take a moment and stand with me for just a second? Go on ahead and stand with me. Now we're going to throw up a prayer on the screen, and I'm not going to ask you to recite it or anything like that, but I really just want you to soak this in. Whether or not you need to reflect on the words and look at them as they're coming across the screen, or whether or not you need to close your eyes and receive them, the only thing I'd ask is that if you're willing, if you'd open up your hands like this in a posture of openness to receive from God healing and wholeness. We're just going to receive these words together, and then when you're ready, you can move to respond. So let's pray. God of healing, God of wholeness, we bring our brokenness, our sinfulness, our fears, and despair, and we lay them at your feet. God of healing, God of wholeness, we hold our hearts and hands, minds and souls to feel your touch and to know the peace that only you can bring. God of healing, God of wholeness, this precious moment in your presence and power Grant us the faith and confidence that here, broken lives are made whole. Move to respond as you're ready.